0: Some people don't believe in heroes, but then again, you may have not met today's guest. Darren Stockton endured a 10-year legal battle to gain custody of his daughter through a court system that constantly fought him, experts that continually berated him, and a child's mother whose own mental health issues caused their daughter immeasurable harm. This is a story told straight from the heart from a man whose enduring love for his child outweighed the mental, physical, and financial toll that it ultimately took. You may need a tissue or two for this episode.
1: There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Fosky and Dr. Dana Saperstein.
0: So Darren, welcome. Thank it's, you. It's good to have you here. Um, I, I know that you've had a history as a professional athlete and a cyclist in Europe and, and done some other things in your life, but that's not what we're here to talk about today, are we? Nope. Um, you've been on a quest for, for some years and in terms of you and your daughter, um, which is a very compelling story and uh, uh, we're having you here to talk about that today. So tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how this story started. Um,
2: well, and, and I guess before I get started with anything, I just want to preface this by saying that um, I'm a very private person. And so it's not the easiest thing to come in here and even talk about myself, but as it relates to the safety of my daughter, as I'm going <clears> to <throat> delve into that subject, I would just ask anybody out there that's listening to this, if, if you don't really feel that you can respect my daughter's privacy you know, in this and that you wouldn't use this podcast you know, for your positive benefit, then I would just ask you to click this episode off. We appreciate that. Yeah, so thank you. So you grew up here in Santa Barbara, yep. right? Born and raised here in Santa Barbara and um, grew up in a, a fabulous neighborhood kind of up in the hills up by kind of Cold Spring School area, which is my school and and grew up kind of living outside and climbing trees and, you know, having a fun life and found my way, um, always grew up riding, riding bikes and found my way through a love of two wheels and actually turning a love of it into a professional career as a racer.
0: And, and I think, you, is, is Kurt older than you? Yeah, Kurt.
2: Cause, yeah, Because I've older. always
0: known you two as brothers, yeah. or it's always been the Stockton, Stockton brothers. brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, yeah. that way. So yeah, that a lot,
2: yeah. So yeah, my older brother was a professional bike racer also. And so it was a fantastic journey for the two of us to realize that dream together and train together and race together and actually able to compete as part of the same team, you know, and compete compete together. So, um, so that was a, a really great experience as far as the racing side of it goes. And then once I got out of racing and retired from competition, I, from the bike industry, I have done product development work, product design, things like that, and had taken a job that had, after my racing career, that had moved me out of, uh, out of Santa Barbara. And I ended up finding my way into training professional motocross athletes, which I still do. And so that was kind of the start of the journey of the whole second half of my life, which is taking everything that I'd learned, you know, as an athlete and, and helping coach athletes to to find their best self.
0: It's interesting that it must be a parallel between cycling and, and motocross somewhere there.
2: Yeah, there is. You know, I, I just grew up on two wheels and long before I ever even before I ever even knew that professional bike racing was a thing you can do, I was just on my bike. I would ride it to school um you know get out get out with my friends and then I actually grew up riding dirt bikes also my parents you know were into racing I never raced them but I just love riding them and there's just something about the joy and freedom and the dynamics of being on two wheels that just always stuck with me it's just a joy of mine still today I feel fortunate I have a lot of friends who are ex-professionals who I would talk to them they're like oh man I haven't ridden a bike in a year you know I'm over it and I would just be like really I couldn't even imagine, you know, not riding for a year, like to choose to choose to not do that. So, um, so the two wheel journey has been really great. It's just opened up my life to, to so many, so many amazing things. Yeah.
0: So start telling us about, uh, this quest, um, of your, of being a father and, and getting custody of your daughter and and how that whole materialized.
2: Well, I found myself uh, in a position where I had a daughter, but I wasn't with the, the mom anymore. And my daughter lived uh, out of state. We weren't in, in the same state. And so.
0: Did you, did you, so was she a certain age already before you found out? Or did you know that I your partner was pregnant or?
2: Uh, I'll just say that I, uh, <clears throat> I found out, pretty early th- that I had a daughter okay yeah yeah pretty early on that I had a daughter and um, as that whole scenario unfolded, I just ended up kind of finding out things about her mom that um, I really didn't know before and over the the journey of that, unfortunately part of what I found out about her mom was that, she had some personality disorders that were, um, you know, were, uh, I'm trying to find the right word here, maybe tragic, I could say, towards my daughter.
0: And, and how long were you with this woman um, during the relationship? Or?
2: Uh, we were a couple for several years. Okay. Yeah.
0: And, and none, of, none of those red flags or anything spoke to you at that, that time when you were together with her?
2: Well, you you know it's a it's an interesting question, and and part of the reason why I'm in here, um, in spite of you know the sweaty palms that I might have right now about opening up my my life to people is, you know I didn't I haven't realized until later in life, um, my more intuitive side, and um, I had gone through a period of life where I was married previously before you know my daughter and her mom and. Had gone through a divorce and I would say kind of up until that time when I was in my middle 30s I'd say my life had kind of gone about as I would expect not that life ever goes exactly how you expect it but it seemed like things were were rolling along pretty well and then I had gone through divorce and for the first time in my life I found myself I had never even lived by myself you know I always had roommates when I was younger things like that and And so I kind of went through a period of time where I had new friends and different things. I had stopped competing professionally, so I maybe partied a little bit more, you know, just just had some fun, none of that bad. But I I went through a period where I would say that not realizing how good my intuition was, I kind of pushed into the boundaries of how I had lived my life. And I think part of that was not realizing how intuitive I was. And I probably, or not probably, but didn't follow some of the little feelings. And so when you talk about red flags, I mean, I guess in hindsight, you could say it. But at the time, the situation, it wasn't really like red flags, but they're just little things that over time felt like they didn't add up. And so in looking back, I realized, oh, that time that I was like, huh, oh, that's kind of weird, eh, you know was my voice saying, hey, yeah, that's kind of weird, pay attention. But I was like, mm, you know, just, just, I think I was in a personal space where I was, like I said, in a spot where I was kind of pushing out against my boundaries and I maybe had lost sense of my intuition and self-awareness. So I really didn't put together some of the signs that I was seeing.
0: Was it that you didn't understand your intuition or was it just at that point or was it just you didn't pay attention to it?
2: Uh well both I think but I didn't understand some of the abilities that I had really until I you know found Dana later on and we kind of talked about it and you know it's funny <clears throat> I'm a you can tell it chokes me up I'm a a very sensitive person which most people <clears throat> looking at me from the outside would never guess. I I do a very good job of kind of, you know, just not letting people know. I I feel you there. Yeah. Of coming out. And so, um, you know, when I was younger and I never realized, I mean, I, I could sometimes, it's not all the times, but I could look at people and look into their eyes and it would be like, I could read their mind. I mean, you know, know all this type of stuff. And I never realized that everybody wasn't like that. I just thought that's the way that everybody was. And so I never really was aware of it. And, and when I started off this journey with my daughter, it really, you know, I, I had to figure out first of all, how, in fact, I found myself in the position and, and through that and the help of Dana, I, I really realized that, uh, you know, like I said, I, 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 just to have this innate sense where where I can feel what people are going through.
0: And your daughter wasn't or was living in the same town as you? No, she was always okay. out of state. Out yeah. of state, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then when did you begin to have a relationship with your daughter? What age?
2: Um, I sp- started having a relationship with my daughter um, when she was a little younger than two. Okay. Yeah.
0: And was the mother willing to allow you to have that relationship with her?
2: Uh no. I mean other than what she maybe absolutely had to do, it it wasn't no, she she really wasn't.
1: Why do you think that she was so um against you being connected to to her?
2: Um I mean the makeup of her psychology, um, you know, and some of her personality disorders, as I've learned, you know, over time. Um, And because ultimately I had chosen not to be with her, with, you know, her mom, that um, that put me from the side of loved and trusted to mortal enemy. And that, you know, was a, a tone that had carried on
1: are you comfortable describing some of what you found out about her mom or is that something you'd prefer to keep private?
2: Um, well, you know, I know one of the big things and and I would say this because I actually helped out a close family member with this recently through my experiences. One of them was understanding borderline personality disorder, um, which is that, you know, light switch, either love you or hate you. And when you get on the hate side of somebody like that, it's for real. Um, and, um,
1: But what about the financial situation that happened that you didn't really understand at the time?
2: Yeah, there was, um, and this led into the situation that was so hard on my daughter is that I had, I had found out after my daughter was born and I started trying to have a relationship with her and it wasn't easy, you know, it was a family court situation. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to come in here and talk too, because As a male in family court, it's not the best position to be in. I've been there. Yeah, and let alone if you have a child who's been with the other parent, you know, and the mom especially from birth, basically.
0: Yeah, and I was warned about that, that the proclivity of the courts is to um, side with the mother the majority of the time.
2: I mean, if if I could, uh, you know, have a dollar for the amount of time somebody told me, you are never going to get your daughter out here. I, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have to work. (laughs) Um, You know, it's just, just, yeah, nobody really thought that, you know, that there was a possibility based on, uh, on the court system. And so part of that backstory was um, that I had found out after the fact, we started getting to family court that, that her mom had actually faked having cancer. And that was a, um, Something that had that I had known about before her mom and I were ever a couple. I had known her through professional circles. Uh, but it came out afterwards, you know, that not only had she faked having cancer, but had taken donations of money from people for treatment and things like that for an illness that it turns out never happened. And so, um, you know, that was, yeah, a pretty pretty shocking revelation when I found that out. And without going into all the details of it, I could say that that was kind of the, uh, maybe the biggest thing, but a bit of a, the Pandora's box that really opened up for me to, to really see what was going on. Yeah.
1: If my recollection is correct, she also told you that she was infertile because of the cancer treatment, right?
2: Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. and And again, yes, yeah, she did. And so... Um, yeah.
1: So the deception started and the manipulation, I guess you could call it not just borderline, but sociopathic behavior started very early on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and really it was there as I found out before she and I were ever a couple. Well, my recollection
1: was that, you know, she, she told you she was not fertile because of those cancer treatment.
2: Right. Right.
1: And so naturally, you know.
2: Right. I, yeah. I could say, I mean, I guess I may be at a point where I'm, you know, looking at at comfort of privacy as it relates to my daughter. Okay, you know, if she were ever to hear this, um, with respect to her mom, but I could just say that that I, you know, I had come out of the divorce of my marriage before I met her mom, and because of kind of the dynamics and how that worked out, it really left me like really open to get taken advantage of by somebody who had this type of mentality unbeknownst mm-hmm. to me. And, and for anybody out there, I mean, who's coming to experience with these people, you know how it feels. If you feel somebody's, your confident, you know, you're a partner in a relationship, the type of stuff you share with them. And then to come to a point where you realize that every one of those things has been cataloged to use, by somebody to you know to try and annihilate you it's a pretty uh a pretty uh sobering experience to say the least yeah yeah yeah
0: um so how often with your daughter living out of state how often were you able to see her in
2: you know i would go back um i would go back at least every three months usually you know about four times a year and it was uh you know on top of this happening it came at a period of time where I was living out of town and was involved in business of professional motocross training and when the housing crisis hit I mean that the economy of that sport just tanked and so it wasn't like the whole rest of my life was great and there was this one thing to focus on I mean I went from you know having a great income and doing all this stuff to like literally evaporating which in a way is kind of good because it it precipitated my move to coming back up here to Santa Barbara was a choice that I made and the amount of people that I've come in contact to in the sport it's the support and everything has been so phenomenal that in a way you know you always look at the silver linings and everything at the time it sure didn't feel great but but it allowed me to to come back up here and kind of maybe refine a, a part of me that's really great you know and, and important to me being my best person so you're while you're going back and forth
0: and, mm-hmm. and visiting your daughter and establishing this relationship with her, finding out more about the past history of her mother, right. um, which seems to be very negative and, and potentially harmful. Um, when did you make the decision, consciously make the decision that that
2: maybe your daughter would be better served to be with you than her mother? Well, I mean, I knew it instantly. The, the instant that I, before I even knew everything, I mean, before I even realized the whole cancer thing, I just knew there was, you know, as soon as she had that power over me, I knew right away, like if, if what's unfolding. That's the truth. I was like, I got, I have to get her out of there. I mean, that was pretty much from the, the outset.
0: And there was no reprisal uh, on, for her faking this cancer thing and taking other people's money and
2: statute of limitations was out, you know, as far as it being like a prosecutable offense and, uh, no, really, no. There, okay. there was really nothing. Yeah. Nothing you could do, you know, and also too, it was, you know, I would say that in my entire life, I can't really ever say that I'd felt shame really that much I think maybe I'm fortunate in that way but this whole situation was the first time in my life that I had ever really felt shame just for feeling like I I got tricked you know by Mm -hmm. by someone to to find myself in that position and so at the beginning it was um you know, I, I was probably more protected about it and didn't reach out to people as much as I should have, which just made it even harder because then, you know, you're holding it in, you're turning it over and you find yourself in those awkward situations where you want to tell people, but then you're afraid of if they'll judge you on it or how it will affect things. And so it was um, <laughs> it was just a pretty difficult yeah, sequence of events. And so I actually went in really immediately and tried to get my daughter out of what I knew was just going to be a bad situation and went to family court and lost originally.
0: Did you go to family court locally or did you have to go into the state that you're not even from?
2: Yeah, it was in Minnesota. And that's why I laid the backstory when you asked about how often I went out to travel and see her. I mean, I would have gone out, you know, 10 times a year if I could, but because of just the financial situation, what happened Mm -hmm. to my work, I I really couldn't. I was kind of building a whole new life and a whole new, a whole new business and everything. And so that was also, you know, the, the, one of the hardest things about this in entirety of this whole scenario is I has always been somebody raised to be independent. You know, I could take care of myself. I could do all of that. And I could say that even through the ups and downs of life, I had been able to do that. And this was the first time I had been involved in something where I, I just couldn't, I couldn't. You hit a wall yeah, I couldn't provide, I mean, I'd never been able to provide, I could remember one time, years later, you know, my daughter, I would go out and visit, she would come out, and there was one year where she would come out for, you know, at that time, like, the best visit she'd ever had in Santa Barbara, and uh, I was going to go out to visit her, and a few months later, and I just didn't have the money, I, I mean, literally, like, had no money, and and, and i'm
0: and I'm guessing yeah. uh, again, based on what you said earlier, the mother wasn't helping you in any way <laughs> in making sure your daughter got to see you and wasn't willing to say, "Okay, I know you don't have the, the funds to do this now, let me help or we'll figure something out it was all it was all on you
2: It, it, it was exactly one hundred percent the opposite of somebody being open and supportive, yeah. As bad as you could imagine. Um, did you
0: did you even know at that point w- what her mother was saying about you to your daughter? At that point, it, it, was your daughter relaying any of the information, or were you just uh, assuming that everything that was being told about you was probably negative?
2: Um, you know one one thing. Uh, you know, you learn about people who if if you get to the point where you really realize like when I really realized what the truth was I had to go back and look at our entire relationship and you start off kind of going well gosh I wonder what's the truth and what's not because you're you're trying to like get a you know some bearing on what the where the truth lies and where it doesn't and you know at least for me what I ended up having to do is just basically kind of clear the slate and realized that even though I'm sure there was some truth mixed in, there there was only one person that knew what the actual truth was, and she was never going to tell me what the truth was. And so really, I just, uh, yeah, I I didn't know. And so I, I just had to take every single thing at face value, but also understanding the background, that knowing that the majority of it had an ulterior motive. Nothing was ever on the surface what it appeared. There was always another angle being worked. And I am not somebody who operates like that. I just like to come right up and tell it how I see it or, you know, be open and real with people. And so to to be involved in something where that was really kind of an impossibility was unbelievably challenging.
0: So the family court in Minnesota told you now uh, to begin with.
2: By a whisker. yeah, uh,
0: By a whisker. And, and I, I can't even imagine how emotional and deflating probably that was to you and so what was your next step
2: well you know fortunately even though I wasn't able to get her to safety in that first round of things the 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 judge on the case really spelled out you know in family court you get like an order you know a court order for people who don't know and that kind of lays out the groundwork of what you do and he really did every single thing he could to make that a great experience. And so it gave me, you know, more time with my daughter. And at a certain age, she would start coming out to California and and visiting. But, you know, as you learn in in family court, you can have an order. But in family court, if somebody doesn't want to do it, a a lot of times there's not a lot you can do about it. At least it's not like, hey, you can call up somebody and it will be rectified. It's just a long process. You have to go back through it. Everything takes time and money. You know, when if you don't have it, is is extremely hard to do. Let alone traveling, you know, and doing all of that. So yeah, so that side of it was extremely, extremely difficult. So you, at least, you had
0: a judge that kind of understood your position, yeah. uh, allowed you some more visitation, and 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 so on. How long did that last for? Before you started realizing then that okay, this is this is maybe worse, or you already knew if it was worse, but maybe it's getting worse. And I have to really do something about this. Go back to court, get another attorney, whatever it's going to take to get my daughter out of harm's way.
2: Well, I mean, the, it was instant. And it was really once, once the court didn't favor for me, it was almost like an open season for her to just you know, make it even more difficult. You'd think it would have been the opposite way. I mean, in some respects, it was better, obviously, because you do have, you know, the courts there. But it was, it was instant. And that was the first round. Was when my daughter was three, and that was really when the screws started to get turned onto my daughter. Was you know, <coughs> she was about three and a half?
1: She was being poisoned. Yeah, against you especially.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, you know the. <laughs> All the things that I've learned through the journey of this and researched about parental alienation and all, all these different things. I mean, it, it, it was
0: happening in apparent when you were visiting her.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. It, it was. You know, and just little things, and again intuition and stuff. But but also, you know, the the, the weird thing was was yeah you, you, yeah it started happening immediately and just you know the the. The hard part about it was if her mom was kind of like, a, you know, her mom is extremely intelligent and that didn't make it any easier, you know, because you, there's a there's a lot of room for maneuverability and like the court systems and behavioral health and stuff. And if somebody wants to get in there and just utilize that, you know, they can't. Yeah.
0: So you said your daughter was about three and a half um, during this first round of, of court hearings and. Yeah. yeah. Um, how long until you took another run at this?
2: I was about, uh, five years later. Um, okay. So
0: you were, you, you kind of, I shouldn't say you kind of, you complied with the court order, Oh yeah, had the visitation, went back there. Hopefully your daughter came out at yeah. that time and visited you. So you established this relationship with her and, and did what you could Yeah, being in a sense and, and, and not for lack of respect here, but an absentee father Right at that point. So you said about eight years later, you went back. Uh, five years five later. Five years later, I'm sorry.
2: But, you know, and I would say, in thinking about it, like after that, you know, from the time she was about, my daughter was three until six, I would say those first three years while everything was still going on, it wasn't, I was able to at least go back and, you know, well, that was actually before I, I started, uh, she started coming out to California, but I would be able to go back and, Have visits, and it wasn't, it wasn't near the escalation that happened later. And then, about the time that my daughter was six, after her first visit out, um, the screws really started getting turned on the situation. And it would be, you know, the the, night, the night before I'm scheduled to go out on a trip, I, you know, would get an email from my lawyer, that an ex parte motion, which is something that's filed like literally in a day or two, you know, be filed and just, um, you know, the, the genius of her mom in the situation to use that word was, you know, as I found out in the behavioral health world and like say the medical side of it going in and getting treated, it's, um, it can be really manipulated. And if if somebody goes in, as their mom would do, and lay out a story and is extremely convincing, if I would show up after the fact and talk to a practitioner or something, I found that they were, I mean, really, in years, I I never found one that would entertain what I had to say. And it was so frustrating to... trying to explain to them something that was going on and just having it fall on deaf ears of like gold standard medical professionals who are supposed to be there to be neutral and help. And <laughs> I mean, all across the board, you know, I could remember going in back the first time and wanting to be involved in my daughter's school. She was in preschool and going, hey, you know, have a parent teacher conference. See how my daughter's doing. And you walk in and there's three teachers in there and you can tell the instant you walk in the room. How that the you're the enemy. Change, oh, yeah. They look at you just like you're the worst person ever for somebody who's never even met you
0: because of what they've been told by the
2: mother. Yeah, and then when you have the ability for then those people to be manipulated and start putting things in in records and things that reflect poorly on me and then the next person reads that and goes, "Oh, that must be true, it's in a record." And it just kind of goes down the line. It's just that that part of it as a side note from everything else I went through was extremely disheartening and eye-opening.
1: How, but did, it, how did you handle it on an emotional level?
2: <laughs> I mean, I guess because I'm sitting here today talking to you, I could say I made it through. But the first thing that popped my mind when you asked that question was not well. Yeah. Um, you know.
1: Well, you you know, I know you quite well, and to have somebody you know describe you as uh, being a, a an abusive father and a, a, you know that only had his interest in himself and was just looking to, you know, damage your daughter and hurt her mom. Right. And that, that was everything that her mom did everything she could to um, convince everyone. Yes. That you were really a very evil person that had very bad intentions with this girl. Yeah. And to watch you go through that was incredibly sad and, and, um, overwhelming.
2: Oh my Yeah. I mean, I could just, uh, you know, I, I had never, experienced in my life, you know, anxiety, and I had heard people talk about it, and um, I could remember, I'll never forget it, this one day, you know, it was in the, going into the first round of court, and I remember, first time I ever felt like my, my analogy is having an 800-pound gorilla sitting on your chest, like, you just can't breathe, (laughs) Luckily, I have a good sense of humor, which which has is, is really helped me through. And I can remember this one day I woke up and I was like, oh. woke up in the morning, I'm like, like, can't breathe. And, you know, from somebody who's a, a professional athlete, right? I mean, you have to put yourself out there and not only road bike racing, which is physically demanding, but then I had a career as a professional downhill racer, which would be like <laughs> downhill skiing, but on two wheels. So you, you can't be in the start gate, at the top going, Oh boy, I better not hit nope. that rock. <laughs> I better not hit that tree. You know, otherwise you'll hit every rock and tree on the yep. course. You have to put all the fear out of your mind and just go after it. And to be in a position where I was like, I really don't know how I'm going to get through this it was the first time ever in, in my life. And so I remember, just getting up and I, I had this big dresser looks out over the window of the place I was living, in, which was beautiful kind of ranch I lived in. And I remember having my hands on the edge of the dresser and I was kind of leaning into it. And I was just going, breathe, man, breathe, you know, breathe. And I was breathing in and out. And I said, you know what? You're going to open your eyes and it's just all going to be a dream. This isn't even happening. You know, This just can't be and i remember opening up my eyes and looking around and i was still in the same place and i go well shit i guess this is real life you know and and i guess the practical practical person in me would kind of tackle it like that but what it threw put me through emotionally was i mean just the most soul and heart gut wrenching thing you know to ever go through and and i you know, the only thing I could liken what I was going through would be if you were a, a parent, and your child had some type of a medical condition that you knew could be fatal. And there was, you felt like there was nothing you could do to help. And, you know, and, and for me, I mean, kids and a family was always a dream of mine and I grew up in a great family, my brother, mom and dad, and and to then be in a position when I have the thing I wanted more than anything, this beautiful child. And to know that not only it was just hard to see her, but that she was being poisoned to me was just, yeah, I mean, it will it will really let you know what you're made of.
0: You talked about earlier about being a very private person. This is obviously very difficult for you to talk about, which we appreciate you being here to talk about it. Um, Did you, were you able at some point to be able to lean on family and friends for some support going through this? Or or did you just take this mission on by yourself? Um,
2: No, no, no. I I, I couldn't. I mean, from right at the beginning, I, I have a fantastic, family like biological family and also just a a close group of friends you know I'm not the person that might have the most friends in the world but the ones that I have are you call them at two in the morning if you're stuck on the side of the road they're like all right I'll be there I mean I I have those people and so I I reached out immediately I mean my uncle who's also an attorney not in family law he was spectacular I mean I I, you know you don't want to say I couldn't have done it without all these people but I, I can't even imagine how I could have without that support so I really did have that support. But uh, the hard part was about, you know, f- you know, I was also in the time when this is going on, I've moved from, you know, I'd lived uh, for 11 years out of Santa Barbara. And so I moved back up. And so while you have a few close friends, your, your whole kind of big network isn't there. And, and that was, you know, one of the things, you know, and again, I'm, I'm here because I'm, I want to help people who've gone through the same thing. You know, I, As I'd said earlier, it was probably the first time I'd felt shame about anything in my life, about being tricked and finding myself in in a position. And um, that kind of fear associated with that led me to kind of not tell more people about what I was going through in the beginning. And if I could change one single thing about my pathway to get my daughter out, that for sure would have been the first thing that I would have changed is I would have opened up to people more you know, right off the bat, and again, that was the that personal privacy thing that that I just you know I had a hard time reaching out, which I, ironically, at a certain point got over, and because I, I really was hurting so bad emotionally that I I had to reach out to other people, I I had to talk to other people, and you know the uh, one of the most amazing things about it is. Uh, if you have the courage to put yourself out there, you can't believe what you get back. And, you know, people I would known for a year or two, for decades, I would tell them a story and it would open this just floodgates and they would, in that safety of having somebody else tell them, I mean, they told me stuff that I was like, oh my God, I, I almost feel lucky that I'm only going through this compared to some of the the stories that I heard about people. And so- um,
0: It is kind of amazing what we oh. keep in and what other people keep in. And then <laughs> when you have that cathartic moment with a real friend- Yeah. About how it, it changes everything.
2: Yeah, when they open up about something that's just so horrible, you know? And I think that's probably one of the- of many, many big lessons I've learned about one of the things I learned is, man, it, it doesn't matter if you have $5 to your name or 500 million to your name, everybody goes through stuff. And you, you just be surprised how many people have gone through heavy, heavy stuff like this that
0: you would never know. Right. Did you ever consider relocating to be closer to your daughter at all?
2: I did. Yeah. And, um, I really did, um, but ultimately, I decided against it because I felt that I would be so vulnerable and exposed out there without having anybody around, you know, that...
0: No support system
2: there, right. I, I, and I still to this day right now, I know that was the best decision not to do that. And that was a tough one, you know, but but I just felt like I could better fight the battle from where I was at.
1: You know, Darren, I, I, want to, um, ask you if you could, you know, you're describing a situation where you're being, you know, basically abused by this woman and, and she's doing everything she can to turn your daughter against you. Uh, the sad thing is it got way worse from there. Yeah. And so I think it's important to talk about how it evolved, even though it's an incredibly tragic story, uh, and, and, uh, again, this is why I've always told you, you're my hero, <laughs> because if every dad was willing to do it, what you were willing to do to take care of their child, I think the world would be a very different place. But I do, I do think it's important if you're comfortable enough to talk about how things default from, yeah, from that point.
2: Yeah, I can. And, you know, and I, and I can tell you that I, I mean, really, you know, I, I talked to friends you know, about what I went through. And I've had male friends who, you know, some who don't have kids and they're like, man, they say, I can't believe you did that. I could have never done that. And I go, I-, I don't know. You say that now, but, you know, until you have a, a child. But but for me, I, I c- couldn't not do it. And there was a moment uh, very, very early on, had never met my daughter. I remember there was a day where I had to make a decision as to if I was going to go forward. And like re- before the first round of family court or anything, and say, okay, I pretty much knew what was going to, I mean, you could never know what really was going to happen to me, but I knew the path that it was going down. And and I thought to myself, I know what I'm going to be turned into in my daughter's eyes. I know all this stuff that's going to happen. Geez, maybe I would be better just laying back and not being a source for her mom to pull from and use against my daughter and vilify me and everything. Would I be better just showing up at age 13, which would be amazing because my daughter's still not that old. So, you know, and, and maybe for another podcast and we have more time, there's a whole backstory to the amazing moment of that situation and what helped me make the decision. But I just knew, I mean, I had to entertain the idea, but I, I just knew there was no way I could not, not do everything, you know, for her, And so, um, you know, what happened is is once my daughter started coming out to visit and would have these longer blocks of time where her mom wasn't around, I mean, our relationship just kept blossoming and blossoming. And, and you know, I, I always felt like it felt like any obstacle that was put in the way of my daughter and I being together, I would work through it and it would make our relationship even stronger. And that was one of the things that I held on to the whole time through it is... It felt like any time our love was, it was attempted to be interrupted when I would work through it, it would just make it even better. And that was really the tipping point. Once my daughter came out and started to visit of her mom, really escalating things, um, to the point where, you know, and I, I have to pause here as I'm thinking about the privacy of my daughter, but I could say that, um,
0: So the mom wanted to sabotage the relationship consistently. And with your daughter coming out here, she's, like you said before, she's an intelligent woman, right? So she's realizing now this bond is really forming. Yeah. And this could be really something because my daughter's falling in love with her, with her father and maybe she's going to come say, I want to move with dad at some point. And God forbid that's never going to happen.
2: Yeah. And, and it was really, um, yeah. So, so, you know, Part of the intelligence of her mom and her, you know, personality disorders, um, she was very adept at using the medical system to abuse my daughter and also really used that to get in the way of my relationship with my daughter. Like I said, going into practitioners and painting them a story and then they would... (laughs) I mean, I saw documents supplied to the court saying I was just the most horrible father ever from a person who had never met me, had never talked to me, had never even seen my daughter and I together. And you show up and see a document that a respected practitioner is willing to submit to the court and put their name to that says this guy's terrible, terrible, um, you know, was terrible. And that was not even the worst of it. And what essentially happened was her mother was able to coach and get my daughter to display behaviors that were so tragic that it started a a pathway where my daughter was just in parts of the medical system and behavioral health and poked and prodded mentally and everything that it was just, I mean, to, to watch, what my daughter had to go through you know it's indescribable and to be a dad and go okay you know every time you go back there every time you try and fight for your daughter it's worse for her you know you start to go what's what's the best for my kid here and I mean I even had professionals who would said I don't know which which was better you know, meaning do you just stay in and fight, 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 fight? Or We're do you back go, around, do you have to back away a little bit? But, you know, there was a, an escalation that happened when my daughter was eight, which happened right before a long summer trip that she was coming out to visit for a month that really put my daughter in peril. And um, and ironically... Do, do you feel yeah. comfortable
0: describing what that was or...?
2: Mm not right now at this moment. Um, but as I talk, maybe I will, I'll figure out a way to, to say it and still respect her privacy. But, um, I found out, I mean, you find out your daughter's been going and seeing people and doctors for years that you have no idea about. Um, you know, ironically in the, in the court system, when you go through like a family court and I try to get custody and lost it, the, the only way that you can ever even go back in to try and change that, there has to be a major shift of events that happens. And so the, the irony of it is I'm always, you know, I'm a, I'm such a cup half full guy. I might look at a cup that's got two drops in there and be like, whew, I don't even know if I can finish that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I somehow am able to just believe that it will you know that it will happen um but so the silver lining in it was that that the escalation that her mom did that put my daughter in peril was enough of a change of circumstances that then it actually gave me the ability to go back in and fight a second time which ultimately was what allowed me to be successful and get her to safety um and uh <laughs> I mean, as Dana knows a lot of the stories, some of the most incredible stuff happened through it and people reaching out and some of the most horrible stuff, but my my daughter, I mean, and she's so strong and amazing, it, it just blows me away. Um, but I went through some of the most horrible unimaginable, Stuff that, as a parent, you could ever have to see your your daughter go through. And based on the science of everything, of this type of personality disorder and, and where it was at and multiple disorders, there was basically about a 9% chance, almost 1 in 10, that it is for kids in that situation that they don't live to see their 18th birthday
0: with the change of circumstance it take multiple court appearances or was it just a single court appearance where the the um, evidence was multiple
2: Yeah. (laughs) yeah i mean beyond multiple it was from the time that event happened it was almost a year and a half for that to come to its conclusion and uh yeah
0: so she's hiring experts you're hiring experts everybody has an opinion in this and and it's up to this judge to decide what's best for your daughter ultimately
2: yeah and and your
0: fate's in somebody else's hands
2: yeah i mean and there were so many twists and turns i mean the the one judge who had really seen things for how they were even though he couldn't ultimately see the pathway the first time to get my daughter to safety he ended up having to retire <laughs> right before we were going into the, the meat of everything i mean and i remember seeing that email from my attorney and reading that but fortunately at that time i i was in a better place with it but i remember at first reading that and going oh you know f <laughs> you know like right. and then i said you know what this is going to be good And maybe that's that positive side in me or or tapping back into my intuitive feeling. But there was a, you know, there was a a period where, you know, and I use being a cyclist, I always use the analogy. And, you know, in cycling, just like in, say, football or basketball, where people are different positions, you have, say, you know, quarterback, you're running back. Or in basketball, you have your, your forward or a point guard or whatever. In cycling, it's the same thing. And I was a sprinter which is, you know, a, a bigger build, which in cycling isn't necessarily advantageous, but I was the guy that on the hills would suffer, but on the flatlands, you know, that was where I earned my money. And, and I could say that there's probably no tougher, tougher task than being a not quite genetically gifted enough sprinter to say, make it all the way to the Tour de France because cycling is just a sport about suffering, really. It's just about hanging on, for dear life through the worst of it digging and gritting your teeth <gasps> to get through that moment and then you know and then uh and then be able to get to a better place and so um that's kind of how I took it on I used that cycling metaphor and and I had got to a place where I felt like the wind had been blowing in my face just so strong for so long and I felt the wind starting to change and so even you know talk about that change and there were many along the line I and I guess this was part of coming back into my intuitive self was I just had to put all the horrible stuff, all the fear out and get right to, it. and I said, Nope, this is, this is going to be good. I mean, and literally having to decide, are you going to, you have the ability to get rid of this judge or not, and having to look at a person's picture and read through their literature, their history, and just close your eyes and try and feel if this is the right person for, for the situation. I mean, you know, and, um. And so, yeah, so the the twists and turns would take 10 podcasts, and I still couldn't tell all of them of the ups and downs. I mean, really, and I don't say that jokingly, of all the ups and downs. And I had people who've been involved in the family court system for 30 years who said they had never seen anything like this. I mean, it was like a, you know of my very interesting life. I hit some gold standards. (laughs) I can't say I was happy that that was a one, but, but yeah. And so the, the twists and turns were just amazing. And, you know, ultimately it was, you know, I I was very fortunate that I, the attorney that I had was retiring and I found this one through the most amazing circumstances that Turned out that she was just the one. I mean, she was just without her. I don't. I don't think it could happen. She was that amazing. She was know? the pit bull with the big teeth that you needed. Yeah, I mean, and and even beyond that, just like you know, uh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Didn't
1: she also help you find the person that was able to put your to put her mom's uh, uh, mental illness? in From context
2: perspective. Well, it was actually the opposite way. And and the the funny thing is about that story, and this is, you know, the the part of it is is I had gone out when this big event changed happened and, and I was out, you know, in, in Minnesota and dealing with just all this stuff through the behavioral health system that my daughter was was going through. And, you know, I I was out and I was just out there by myself staying in a hotel and I had just been out during the day and gone through all this horrible gut wrenching stuff. And I, I came back to my hotel and it was like, you know, two in the afternoon and I go, I go get something to eat. And, you know, and I went down and the restaurant wasn't open. The bar wasn't, I sat there and I, I ate about four or five beers for lunch, you know, not, (laughs) not happy to, to admit that, but it, it was, I really couldn't even deal with what I was going through. And I, I just, went up to my room after that, and I laid down in bed and went to sleep, I mean, like, I, I couldn't deal, and I woke up, and my girlfriend at the time, you know, I called her up, and, and she was starting to do research on these type of personality disorder, and uh, so I'm googling, you know, and I'm going, God, I need to find somebody who's an expert in this, I need to find somebody who knows what's going on, and I'm using google i'm searching i'm trying to find people i can't find anybody and i finally was so stressed out i didn't know what to do and then she had sent me some links to these videos talking about this disorder um and i i she sent me these links i started watching these videos of testimonials of people gone through as adults what my daughter was going through and i'm like i can't even watch this and i just went to sleep like it was all i could do i went to sleep and i woke up in the morning. And I fired open the search engine again, and I typed in the exact same things. But as you learn about search engines, they pull up new information based on what you've been searching. And this renowned expert pulls up, and I'm going, oh, wow, this is amazing. She seems great. And I click through, and I go, I look at the map. I go, her office is like five minutes from here. I go, amazing. And, and, And it was July 4th. The, the day, and so I go. Man, she's—I know she's not going to be working on the fourth. And so I, I have look, and I see an email. But I go, I better not email her today. I'm going to wait until tomorrow morning. So if she gets a lot, it's at the top of the queue. I sent her this email, and she calls me back, and she, I kind of explained briefly what I was going through. And she says, "Well, you know, do you have time in the next couple of days?" And I was like, "If—if if that was really felt like a, a first break that I got, and I went in and talked to her, and she was the first person." ever that when i told her what was going on she said we gotta not only she say you gotta get your daughter out there but she said i really think that you can and that was the first time and that led me to to find this attorney who was just you know miraculous and um
0: was that the first time you actually really felt that you had hope now yeah within this case yeah
2: yeah i can remember that this kind of angel kind of came in and Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I can remember. I can remember driving and calling up my, you know, my girlfriend and while I was driving to some other appointment and telling her that it was a possibility. And I mean, I couldn't stop crying, which if you know me might not seem like a big deal as I (laughs) can turn on the waterworks. But really that was, you know, of of different moments that are seared in your memory. I can remember that one because it was the first time I really felt hope.
1: Hey Darren, I know that it's really hard to be specific, but I think it would actually, if you if you feel comfortable enough to talk about what the condition was that this woman yeah. was an expert in, yeah, it will. I think that people really need to know that it exists and that um, it's real.
2: Yeah, and, and yeah, and I will. And so the the condition is it's probably best known as Munchausen by proxy. Nowadays, it's called factitious uh, imposed upon another, but Munchausen, and it's it's parents, but almost always moms who abuse their children through the medical system. Right. And all different types of abuse, you know, um, you know, poisoning this and that. And in my daughter's case, it was all emotional and mental abuse used through the the medical system. yeah, and and it turned out this. You know, this person was an expert and they're not easy to find on this very thing and had dealt with multiple cases where where, you know, that she had done this with people and dealt with a bunch of me. Up until then, I don't think I'd ever even talked to a person who had dealt with it, let alone to find somebody who's like, Oh yeah, I know this and I've dealt with this a bunch of times.
1: Well, I remember when I was in school I worked in a psychiatric ward for a number of years and every once in a while someone would come in and appeared to be incredibly mentally ill, yeah. And they, I mean, they were like the, like an expert at whatever the condition was that they were representing. And usually, after about four, maybe five, six days in the hospital, people would start to figure out that maybe this wasn't as uh, kosher as, yeah, you know, as it appeared to be. And then, as soon as the person realized that they were going to be discovered. They would just disappear.
2: Oh yeah, cut and run. As soon as they're found out, they disappear. Everybody from from the from that no, would know anything about them. It's gone. Right. Move on to the next. Yeah.
1: Now uh, this was Munchausen syndrome in you know itself. It wasn't by proxy. The the, the people that I'm um, encountered they were the they were the Correct. ones that. Uh, uh, that exhibited the symptom, but the, prox- like, the proxy part yeah. of it, which is so tragic, is that they use their children. Correct. As a as a as the symptom.
2: Yeah, and so with Munchausen, people make up fake illnesses to get sympathy, money, things from people, like faking cancer and getting you know a lot of money and donations. And you're correct, once Munchausen by proxy, they then use the child to get that sympathy. Because I mean, who who doesn't have a heart for a sick child, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: So when you found out that your child was being used in this way, uh, that's when the emergency lights went on inside your head, more so than before. Or, um, well, was it just uh, a confirmation of what you would already know?
2: Yeah, I would say more <clears throat> more of that. But it, you know, the onion just kept peeling back layers as time went on, and and you would realize how even more pervasive it was and, and, and finding things out. So yeah, it, it just got continually worse and worse and worse, which if you study any of, you know, cause I've read tons of cases on it, that's pretty much always the way it goes. It gets worse and worse and worse right. until the child finally has enough strength, usually right about when they're 17 or 18 to maybe realize it and just take off or it goes, you know, tragically the other way. Right. Yeah.
1: You know, it's a it's a disorder that's really hard for people to believe that it's real. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted you to mention it by name is because some of the people that you went to see, you know, these are not like normal schlubs in the world. I mean, th- these are like... No, gold you know, standard people. Gold standard professionals. And right.
2: would just look at me and just refuse to believe me. Right. Refuse. not Not even believe me, to even entertain that that could be a possibility right nope you know i was the enemy and that was it from you know right. a practitioner yeah.
0: i'm gonna ask dana a question about munchausen's is that munchausen's predicated upon a deeper seated personality disorder or mental illness disorder do you know
1: you know it's kind of a category that's separate from other diagnoses it's just a it's just another uh
0: so it doesn't come from uh, somebody with a bipolar background or narcissistic?
1: Uh, you know, that it's possible for people like they uh, they, they do, saying.
2: It, it's, you know, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say it's it's almost always wrapped up with many or many all of the others. things that okay. you've said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's never, yeah, from what I understand the literature, it's never a standalone. No, okay. there's always some other component there, but they really, they don't know yeah. what causes it, yeah. It's one of those weird ones.
1: It is, and it, it is hard for people to believe that it's that it's real. Yeah, but I, you know, I saw people in action, and when I first met them, they appeared to be actually more schizophrenic in a certain way than somebody who had schizophrenia. They had the symptoms and the behavior so uh, down that it, you know, there's no way in the world that you would that you could tell until days go by and you start to, see, you know, when the maybe you see the person when they don't know that anybody's looking at them yeah. or whatever, the cracks start to, to show up. And then eventually the psychiatrist or somebody starts to think, you know, I'm getting worked here because the, the person always comes in through the emergency room. It's never uh, because they're seeing a professional and the yeah. professional admits them into the hospital because they're worried about them. It's always an emergency situation. and And as soon as the person leaves, they just go to another hospital and
2: Oh yeah, and, and they, that's
1: how they live their life. So they, they yeah. live for free. There's no cost to them because they don't ever pay their bills. they they're, they're, most of the time they don't even know who the person really is because they use, uh, you know, a false identity yeah. and all that stuff.
2: Now the you know the the modernization of the medical system and electronic records and stuff actually makes it harder for people with this you know disorder. To work the system because can, it, it used that. to be a lot easier if you'd leave in its paper records and right. you don't tell a new doctor of the old doctor, then they, they don't know what's going on. You know, the, the interesting thing about Munchausen by proxy, or I'd say it, in, you know, is his when I again opened up to people, I, I can't tell you. I mean, I have one guy who's a doctor at a friend of mine is a doctor at Codge Hospital, and I told him what was going on. He goes, Darren, he goes, I see it all the time. And I go, Really? And he goes, yeah, you know, I had a, a friend who I've known for 25 years, and I, I was telling him the story about this when it happened, and he stops cold and looks at me, he goes, my brother is going through the exact same thing with his wife right now, Wow. and I was like, I mean, from somebody who I hung out with, had beers with, talked to, everything, and, uh, and it, it was amazing, again, another part of reaching out, you find out that it is more common out there, but you're right, Dan. It's so hard for people to believe. And when I say gold standard of medical professionals, of trying to diagnose something like this or see things, I was gone through to seek out these people, the best of the best, to help my daughter. And they were fooled or didn't see things just, just like anybody else. It was just amazing. Yeah. So... It
0: took a year and a half to, to, and and this expert that was on your side finally to yeah. explain to the court what actually was going on, and and your daughter was actually not only being harmed, but in continual in harm's way. So you prevailed in court, yeah. And then, so did court give you full custody of your daughter yeah. at that time and allow you to move your daughter yeah. to California?
2: Yeah, that was always what we had on into and you know.
0: was what were the ramifications from the mother at that time because I'm, I'm sure she just didn't wave the white flag and say oh you know my gig's up
2: uh well or did she uh no okay. but i can say okay. that uh, and this is probably you know it's kind of funny when you talked about the the court system not being favorable you know It doesn't matter
0: whether it's Minnesota or Santa Barbara, it's the same way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But what I will say this, which is interesting, and this was part of the tide turning is, is I would say that, you know, somebody like her mom could convince a practitioner who was a woman, almost always went to women and was able to turn them against me, right? If a woman sees a dad, that's a, a bad dad, they think or whatever, you know, what you get from them is not pleasant. But I will say that a woman who then sees that it's a woman who is actually the one that's doing it to the child, the flip, or I should say, the support that I received in that situation was more positive than the negative the other way. If, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. like, like that, yeah, the, the support I got from some of the people that were just in the court system, I didn't get to choose them. They were just selected by the courts. It's a very random procedure and everything I mean that the was that was a big part of you know of, of what made it happen not only just from the technical details but for me feeling like I really you know really had that support for my for my daughter yeah
0: so that was that was four years ago
2: that was uh two and a half years two and a half. ago at the end of 2019 and so uh yeah my, my daughter and I came so- out here to, to california to live and then about four months later a pandemic hit and we went into complete lockdown
0: so that was, was a pretty interesting if you didn't know time. her then you surely know her
2: now yeah no we you know it, my uh my daughter and i i mean from the moment i met her i could just tell we just had this thing and you know i never never have been somebody to you know be a part of, say, like organized religion. And I would say that I didn't even have what I would call a spiritual side until I, you know, until I went through this journey. But from the very first time I met her, we we just had this thing. I mean, I I could tell it was, it was, and it, it was there the whole time, even though it was beat down and suppressed from her side, but there was just this connection, this love that was undeniable. And, you know, the first time I ever got to see my daughter, which was, an hour one day and an hour and a half the next day in a, in a supervised situation, not the time that you would ever, you know, the, the way that you would ever think of it happening. I remember I was sitting, you know, gone down to the airport to fly home and I was sitting there with my mom. She had come out with me and we were sitting, you know, ordered some dinner. And I said, ah, you know, I, I got to go use the bathroom. And I was thinking about my daughter and I got up to walk across the terminal to the bathroom and I couldn't feel my feet. I felt like angels picked me up and just carried me. I tell my daughter about that all the time. She, oh dad, is this that sappy story about the angels? You know, I tell her after (laughs) I first man like yeah, she'll she'll understand later on in life. That sappy story about the angels, but it but it really was. And so all through it all along, and I, I think that's one of the things I just it was just there. It was, and, you know, when I talk about the spiritual side, I, you know, you think about, okay, why did this happen? Is it just, you're just a person and you got fooled or whatever, or is there some deeper connection? And I just know, no matter what it was that I was selected, you know, by the universe because I've really realized my life as an athlete and then working with athletes and everything that I know could not have prepared me any better for the task that the, the the sum total of the skills and everything that i needed to pull off it was like the life journey and whatever great things i may have accomplished myself as a racer and working with other athletes and all this stuff i felt like really all of that was just preparing me to be the person that could actually go do this for my daughter because you know she, she that soul was going to come into the universe i believe but the fact it needed me to help her to get to safety.
0: Is there a relationship with the mom at all
2: still? Uh, no. No. Not, not really, yeah.
0: And how is your daughter, again, like you had said, that when all this happened and COVID happened, how's your daughter adjusting to, to living someplace else? She is a, a preteen, yeah. Now, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so you know, not only the, the the emotional abuse that she suffered, but you know, being a, being somebody that grew up somewhere else, now having to relocate and things like
2: that, how 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 all that uh, um go. Well, I mean, I, I guess the answer to it is she's doing great. She's doing amazing, doing fantastic. If you if you didn't know. And Again, which is why I hold her, you know, her privacy so dear. Most people you would never even think no. it. Good, she just looks like a normal kid, and it's very interesting the the science on this type of abuse. And this is what the expert explained to me is that it's it's almost like a like the Manchurian Candidate that movie where it's you you are you're brainwashed, but as soon as you can get away from that abusive parent and get into environment, I mean, it's a certain part of it is like a light switch. Now, granted, it's been a process. And obviously, you know, it hasn't been easy by any means. And there's still hard parts of it. I mean, you could imagine no no matter how much she loved me and the fact that she'd been out here and knew people and stayed with me for, you know, weeks at a time and everything like that, even still, you could imagine just for any kid to, uh, you know, to go to school one day and think you're going to come home to your normal family. But you know, your uncle picks you up and the next morning you're on a plane to California and your life changes without even really knowing what's going on. You could imagine for even a, just a normal, well-adjusted, healthy kid and not at that situation, what that would do. And so that's why I say, I mean, her resiliency is amazing. I could remember one of the, the experts, one of the court experts, actually, like I said, that was just selected by the court. I remember her telling me at one point, she goes, she goes, your daughter is so strong. She goes, if my kids had to go through this, she goes, they would have cracked a long time ago. I mean, this is from somebody who'd been working in that field for 30 years. And it'd say You're, she said, I, I can't even believe how strong your daughter is. And she is, she's just got that thing in her. You know, it shows up in, in other areas too, but she, you know, she's amazing. She's, I mean, I even tell her like, she's willing to do work that I know a lot of adults aren't willing to do, you know, to really get to a better place yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: well she's amazing because she has a father like you <laughs> thanks that was willing to go to battle to do what was right yeah and so darren we thank you for being here today and and telling your story i know it wasn't easy yeah there's a lot more you have to say so we'll, we'll have you back in in yeah. the future and and we'll have uh some more of these discussions but again thank you i'm sure this is going to be um meaningful for for people out there that are either fighting for custody or has fought for custody because your your story will surely resonate with them. So Yeah,
2: yeah, thank you. And I, I guess, you know, one last thing I would want to say just um you know and and the biggest reason why I came in here to speak again in spite of, you know, the sweaty palms that I had walking up the stairs today and everything else about it is just because I really learned for me how much reaching out to people helped me and uh you know, it's a pretty scary thing. I was, I was talking with Dane about this, you know, and, and he had kind of brought it up to me one time. Like normally if you, as a person in this world, if you see malevolence, you know, e- evil, right, right in your face, you get to go, dude, I'm going to turn and cut and run and go the other way, which is what you should do. And, uh, but in this situation, if I wanted to save my daughter, I couldn't. And so I, I could just say to, to people out there, if you're, you know, if you're going through something like this, just uh, always think about your kid and what they need and, uh, you know, anything is possible.
1: Um, Darren, would you like to spend just a minute talking about the kind of help that you need right now?
2: Mm, oh, yeah, yeah. Is that okay? Um, so I had, um, you know, th- through my, my business here in town, I, I myself you know, coming up to be a professional athlete was given a lot of help by coaches and, and people in the area of Santa Barbara, which is just great. Really, you know, mentorship that helped guide me into a professional career. And so through my business, I, you know, I donate time and I help train. I, I, I was a, you know, a kid athlete that went on to become professional and I, I donate my time for high school aged athletes and have helped coach a bunch of cyclists and I'd had this, I, you know, kids and through high school and help them. In, and, you know, I really realized um, in my life how much athletics helped to mold me into the person, you know, that I was. And like I said, when I was going through the worst of this, I'd be like, okay, you know, if you can ride a 120-mile race in the rain in Belgium where you feel like crap and you're number 105 in a line of 120 people suffering all day, you can do this, you know. And then I pulled from that all the time. And my brother, who is a professional Felt the same way. And one of my best, my very best friend growing up who raced bicycles with me also, he went on to become a mountaineering guide. I mean, you know, climbed into bed and led three-week expeditions on Mount McKinley. And we would talk about it. He goes, I can't tell you. He goes, how many times? He goes, we'd be like have to push into camp. And I was hungry and we didn't have time to eat. And my whole body's hurting. He goes, and I would remember those bike rides we did. I mean, we were like 16 and 17, you know, going up the coast of Gavio, just going as hard as you could, hanging on by your... You know by the skin of your teeth to try and to try and stick with it and so you know cycling through my coaching kids in cycling I I really realized like yeah okay maybe somebody could become a professional or not but I really realized the benefit of it was just using sports you know I'm obviously cycling oriented but sports in general and athletics to really help kids of that age find themselves and and it you know, I, f- I had so many kids who had told me how much, you know, what we did had meant for them. And they're, <clears throat> excuse me, out in college. And I get a phone call or a text message, you know, where they, you know, say, thank you so much, you know, for what cycling taught me. And so I'd had this idea some years ago um, about trying to actually, you know, create some type of a program where that's really the the focus of it. And so I've been working on that again recently because the backdrop of COVID, you know, one of the things when the lockdown that happened, you know, is my daughter's very physical person in Minnesota. She was a cross-country skier and always outside. And you come out here and you're you're in a lockdown and you gotta stay in a house all day, let alone the fact that we didn't have a whole friend system. She had never been in school out here and and she was really suffering not having that outlet. And, you know, a, a little over a year ago, I, I found an outlet for her. She does what's called aerial. You know, it's like what they would do right. in Cirque du Soleil, that type of stuff. And and I just saw how she transformed, you know, and not only just from the emotional side, but, you know, kids, especially these days. And, and again, I'm sure many parents can resonate how in COVID kids' attachments and connections of friends have been through. Screens, you know, tablets and things like that, which I'm thankful for, but also there's a lot of maybe not so great parts of that. And and so I have been wanting to create a program to use athletics, you know, as a backdrop to really teach kids about resiliency and strength and independence and ultimately help them reach their full potential um, as human beings, regardless of whether they ever had a career as an athlete, I've really found that. and so um, and so I've started a, a project called ACE um, which stands for Athletic Centered Evolution and it's a program for using athletics to really help teach kids about life and, and learn to, to teach them what their potential is. you know what they can do, And again, it's amazing when you reach out to people, you know, this, a sequence of events happened where there's a a property that's come up that some friends of mine have that they're, you know, splitting off and, and selling part of it is like, if you could have written down everything you would want to make a program like this happen, it would like check every, you know, check every list. And so I, uh, amazingly had reached out to a few people and it's amazing what i've received already is basically like an endowment to start to try and go out and get this uh this property to try and build a program for kids and so um we're going to start accepting help from people and and donations to try and help secure a property and and build this this ace program so how can
1: people reach you if they want to get involved?
2: Um, the best way is I, I just set up an email for this program, and it's the aceproject22, like the number 22, at Gmail. And, you know, if you, if you email me there, again, it's the aceproject twenty two and we'll put that
0: in the show notes so people can reference it there as well
2: okay great that would be great yeah and um and and it's just such a fantastic opportunity and i so many people i talk to about their kids who during covid are just having a hard time struggling i mean it's it's kind of universal for a lot of them and so yeah getting this project off the ground what i've received already is pretty amazing it's a small part of what i would need to make it happen but um but yeah, so that's really something that's close to my heart. Not only for what I saw the help and benefits for my daughter, but myself and close friends who have used sport to help build us into the the people that we are.
0: Yeah. Well, it mm-hmm. sounds like you're headed down the right path. <laughs> and, and again, all we need is somebody that cares. And yeah. you're you're a, you're a caring person, and and I can see how you have that impact on other people's lives. So uh, again. Thanks for being here. And uh, again, we'll have you back and we'll have some further discussions about uh, your depth and uh, your life. So great.
2: Thank you very much. Right. Thanks, Thanks you. Sure. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks.
1: We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com.